Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes for another Bible book overview. You know, this has really become one of my favorite things to do on the podcast. Not just because um, it's fun to get to do the overviews of the book, but uh-huh. I think it's nice to go back and review and do a little study on each of these books. I agree. It is. And it, it, to me, every time we do this, I don't know about the people listening to us, but every time I do this, I, I want to go read the book. Yeah, that's how I feel too. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed just in the last you know, couple of months of pastoring, but I certainly noticed this overseeing education and everything at Crossings for four or five years, biblical theology, a broader scope of the Bible, is one of the things that the church needs the most. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean lay people. I mean pastors and right. people that work in churches is one of the biggest struggles in studying the Bible is not just sitting down and actually studying it, although that can be a struggle sometimes too. If you're struggling with that, listen to our podcast episode from last (laughs) week on stewardship, but that can be a real struggle. But once you get there and you sit down and you read, especially the way that we typically do reading plans, it has a tendency to put blinders on to the bigger themes of the Bible. It's very hard to grasp the big themes of Scripture when you're reading a chapter at a time. Right. So I've just really been set on growing in my own understanding of biblical theology and in preaching good biblical theology, helping people connect their Bible, helping people to, you know, ascertain the whole skeleton of scripture and not just one little microbe here and there. So one of the things in these book overviews that I always think is interesting is to go back and see how these books connect with the rest of scripture, how they fit together and this book, Colossians especially, is really important for biblical theology because it's a great summary of some of Paul's major themes. Right. So, you know, you can get a book like Romans, which is really one you have to chew on, mm-hmm. and it has a lot of big themes. And Ephesians has a lot of big themes, but Colossians may be the most practical big themes. Right. Particularly in as short a letter as this is, there is a lot of profound ideas in here. And at the same time, when you read a commentary, one of the things that you'll see on most of these letters, certainly on Colossians, is that it has two things going on at once. First, it's written to a particular church, and some of the elements are to address particular problems there. Right. But the way it addresses those particular problems is by applying those biblical truths and themes that run through the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have a lot of sympathy for people that want to situate these letters as only referring to the local problems at that local church. Totally. Because the method that's used is to apply biblical principles. I think once you get that idea then it makes it easier to apply them to our lives. I think so, too. I think these are timeless letters, and that doesn't mean there isn't some contextual work that needs to be done. As we're going to see here, there is a Colossian heresy, and we're not 100% sure what it is. Right. But there are some things that we can glean from it. The, The other thought I had coming into a book like Colossians is, when you think about what's necessary for living the Christian life, the Gospels are an excellent place to start. I think most people, if you're going to read the Bible with someone who's not a Christian or if you're going to have a, a person who's just growing in their faith and they want to read something, a gospel is a great start. Mm-hmm. I've also found that Colossians is a great start. It's one of those books that hits a lot of things that will bring up good discussion topics. Mm-hmm. If you're discipling someone and you want to hit the basics of the faith, it would be hard to do better than the book of Colossians. Good point. So it's uh, it, it's one of those that 
I would love to see people sitting down and studying together because it gives you such breadth in such an accessible short letter. Mm-hmm. So with that introduction, I want to start where we usually do with the background. And as we always talk about with these letters, sometimes the background is really important and sometimes the background is not that important. In this one, I think the background is pretty important, at least in understanding what's going on in the church. So maybe give us a little context on how did we get to the letter of Colossians? A great, great point. First of all, the city itself is inland from Ephesus. I don't have a map here, so you have to imagine this. Imagine Ephesus on the coast of Turkey. And imagine if you were going to go inland, you would follow the rivers and you would follow the valleys. You don't really want to climb up and down mountains. And so if you follow the rivers and you follow the valleys, the Lycus Valley, long, broad valley, you would move inland and you would come to the towns of Colossi, Colossians, Laodicea, the Laodiceans, and Heropolis. And so those three towns were kind of like the Tri-Cities. They were mm-hmm. in the Lycus Valley. There was a lot of trade going through there. Uh, they probably did joint chamber of commerce events, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. So that's where we are. Now, who are the people there that have become Christians? Well, it's largely Gentile. Mm-hmm. You have Turks, you have Romans, you have Greeks. But we know from other writing, extra biblical writing, that maybe 200 years before this, there were a lot of Jews that were sent there, that were exiled there by the Greek rulers of the time in 213 BC. So there is a a Jewish community there. So there are some Jews who have become Christians, but there's largely Gentiles. You know, one of the really interesting things about Colossians as opposed to a letter like Ephesians or other places is that Paul has not been to this church. So why did Paul decide to write a letter to Colossae? Great question. You may remember on the third missionary journey, so we're 52 to 55 AD, Paul spent almost three years in Ephesus because it was such a major city, major seaport. It was like a hub. Mm -hmm. And so he camped out there and did a lot of ministry and a lot of people were converted. Obviously the church in Ephesus, hence the letter, the Ephesian letter to that church and maybe churches surrounding But there were people that became converted in Ephesus and went back to their hometowns. They became evangelists. And one of those young men was named Epaphras. And Epaphras is from the town of Colossae, from this little Lycus Valley area. And so he likely went back, shared his faith, and was the genesis of the church, at least in Colossae. Mm -hmm. And so this letter is being, uh, he is coming with this letter back to his hometown church with news from Paul. Yeah, one of the things that we see in these letters is the person who's delivering the letter, oftentimes, and we'll talk about Tychicus here in a minute as well, oftentimes is kind of a the person that explains the letter as well. And so what you have here is you've got a problem in Colossae. Epaphras goes and finds Paul. And when he comes back, he's not just bringing this letter he is bringing the authority of Paul, but he's actually going to have to be the one that deals with this situation. Right. So Paul is not writing this like he is to the, the letters to the Corinthians where he knows he's going to be back there shortly, right. or he intends to be back there. This is really going to rest on Epaphras to solve these problems. He's going to use this letter as authoritative teaching in order to do that. 
you know, one of the interesting things here versus Corinthians, this is a little minor point, but in the Corinthian letters to whom he wrote three letters, we have two, at least three letters, and where he spent quite a bit of time as well and was known, a lot of his writing talks about his personal relationship with them. Whereas in this letter, because he doesn't have a personal relationship, he talks so much about Jesus Christ and he grounds things in the doctrine and the person of Christ rather mm-hmm. than the relationship that Paul has. Yeah, it becomes a very timeless yes, letter because of that. So there's two other introductory points that I think are worth mentioning in this one. And the first one is Paul's location. Where is Paul? And this is a, this is something that's talked about in commentaries and things. Um, do you have a, a strong opinion on where Paul might be? You and I may disagree on this, but uh, in our preference, but not in our opinion. So timetable, he's in third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus from 52 to 55. When that journey's over, he goes back to Jerusalem. You read in the book of Acts, gets arrested, is imprisoned in Caesarea on the sea. That's in Israel for two years from 57 to 59. Then he is sent to Rome and he stays there from 60 to 62. By the way, that's where the book of Acts ends. So I like Rome but some others make a good argument that it was Caesarea before he went to Rome. And in the end, I'm comfortable with either. How about you? I think a lot of the commentators leave this up to speculation. It's, it's if not impossible, very difficult to settle. Right. The biggest argument against Rome is just the sheer distance of the journey. We're right. talking like a thousand miles to get to Paul. I mean, that's a long journey, a long time, very dangerous, risking right. his life. Um, whereas Caesarea is easier. I think N.T. Wright actually proposes an Ephesian imprisonment, um, in which case he's a lot closer, Mm -hmm. but most people think that this letter comes with the letter um, to the Ephesians from from the same imprisonment. Obviously, you're not going to have that happen in Ephesus. So it's it's difficult. Um, The other thing, background-wise, is we know that this letter was accompanied by the letter to Philemon. So Philemon probably lives in Colossae, it's being delivered by Tychicus as well, and uh, there's a whole band of people coming with these letters. So uh, you have Epaphras, obviously, you have Tychicus, and you have Onesiphorus, who's probably coming, or Onesimus, who's coming as well, in this little band with at least two letters, maybe more. Right. Yeah, likely you know, I mean, spoiler alert, but basically the th- for two reasons. The themes in Colossians and Ephesians are very similar meaning he says some of the same things, which makes a lot of sense if he wrote them around the same time. You have Tychicus delivering the letter to Ephesus. You have Tychicus, along with Epaphras, to Colossians. Mm -hmm. And so it makes so much sense to think these are all delivered together. It also makes sense geographically. Mm -hmm. If he's sailing into Ephesus, delivers the letter to the church there, goes inland, he delivers this letter to Colossae. We know from Colossians that he also had one for Laodicea, which we do not have today. Right. And it just makes sense that Paul would have uh, bundled these letters together and sent them on right. a journey like that. You know, that's the second thing I want to point out is the similarity between Ephesians and Colossians. Mm-hmm. And the, these letters are parallel in their structure. They talk about a lot of the same things. They talk about things slightly differently. But they have the same thematic structure. And sometimes it's really helpful to read passages in Colossians with passages in Ephesians talking about the same thing. Right. 
Um, and don't be surprised if you're looking into a study Bible or a commentary, they're going to reference back and forth between these two. Right. Um, you know, one of my favorite comparisons is in Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, um, teaching and admonishing, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians, right. in chapter 5. But he says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual right. songs. And what people have made of that is the filling that happens is word and spirit. So you see Paul saying both of those things, talking about what it looks like to be filled with the word, talking about what it looks like to be filled with the spirit, and the joy that comes from that. Anyway, there's there's really fruitful ways to read these letters together. And sometimes they explain each other. Mm -hmm. So you can go back to our Ephesians introduction um, where we discussed the theory that Ephesians is an encyclical letter, Mm -hmm. that it is kind of a, a... made summary of Paul's theology for the churches. And we just happened to have the one to Ephesus. Right. So, but this was pretty standard teaching from Paul. Mm-hmm. So with that introduction, uh, I want to hit on some of the themes of the book of Colossians. You know, it's, when I read back through this this week, it's, this is one of those books that has a lot of passages that you probably have heard right. and know packed in here. The first one being this Christ hymn at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So this is in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he goes on. He's before all things. He's given to the church. There's a similar passage in Ephesians. There's a similar passage in Hebrews as well, Mm -hmm. where you see the total supremacy of Christ. And this is a great way to start out the letter because It has a very high view of Christ. As you said, Paul spends his time talking about Jesus Christ in this letter. And here he is talking about Jesus being the supreme ruling authority over all of the earth and over all the kingdoms of the earth, and that he is a gift to the church. Right. Now, the other thing that's interesting in here is you get some theological um, terminology going. So what does it mean for him for example, to be the head of the body, the firstborn of the dead, preeminent in everything. Does that mean that he is a creation? Does that mean um, you know, that he is part of the church or he is the church or he has authority over the church? There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot to parse here theologically. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. There, I, I tend not to want to read too much into this and read it contextually with the rest of the New Testament so that you don't get too narrow in the thinking here. Uh, we, you and I haven't talked about this, but I see it. On the one hand, you get the, the metaphor of Christ is the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. Church is the bride of Christ. Here, you get the idea of authority, head of the church. You get the idea of front runner. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the guarantee that God can indeed raise us from the dead. It, I, I tend to want to read this as different ways of describing Christ's role rather than go deeply and say, okay, is this saying more than that? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty wise way to read this. You need to read it in context, but it's certainly advocating for a very high Christology is what we would say. Um, the second thing that it flows into is... Not only is Christ the head over the church, 
he is doing something that is a continuation of what God has been doing through the whole Bible. And that is this reconciliation theme. That's a big theme in Ephesians. It shows up in Romans. It shows up in Galatians. Paul writes about this in almost every letter. But here it's put in a distinct way because he uses the term mystery. Mm-hmm. So in verse 27, um, to, to them, he's talking about things in the past and, and things that have now been revealed. Um, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the continuation of what God was working towards from the time of Abraham all the way up to Christ, that the mystery that is revealed now is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews and that Christ can be in the Gentiles in the same way that he can be in the Jews. Christ in you means that even Gentiles can be glorified. Even Gentiles can be brought into the family of God. And this is a huge theme in all of Paul's writings. Right. Well, this may be a good time to talk about the Colossian heresy. And what we mean by that is an inference in this sense. First of all, you've noticed that he's spoken about the supremacy of Christ and a very high, exalted view of who Christ is. You just talked about a theme that runs through all the Bible, about uh, this this mystery, this mm-hmm. plan of God to bring in the Gentiles. But the fact that he says those things here and the way he says those things, for example, using the word mystery, which is a loaded word in that time, is makes scholars and readers think, you know what? The fact that he's saying these things is just because they're true. But the fact that he's loading it in the front of the letter and the terminology he's using This sure sounds like he's trying to rebut something that's being taught there that's Mm -hmm. undermining this. And so when we say the Colossian heresy and we say there are teachers there that are teaching other things, and you'll see as we get into the letter, there are some really evident cases of that. But we have to reconstruct what they were teaching. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about what is the Colossian heresy, well, no one knows, but you would assume that they were teaching something less than the full supremacy of Christ. Right. And they were teaching some kind of mystery knowledge, secret knowledge that you would know, you would be initiated into, and you could be in the inner circle. And one of the reasons people think this is uh, what's called Gnosticism is Gnosticism as a Greek teaching, and then it came into the church as a kind of a weird mix of Christianity, has both of those aspects. Mm-hmm. The Gnostics said, well, Christ isn't God, and he's not the same as God. He's sort of a mirror reflection of God. Right. And they also would say, and by the way, if you want to be saved, you need Christ, but you also need the secret knowledge, the mystery that we know. And so I, I think this is a good point to say, when scholars talk about these heresies, and maybe it's a Gnostic heresy, that's detective work. Right. And it's hard to figure out in this letter what the Colossian heresy is. There is the preliminary question of, is this a heresy from within the church or outside the church? Mm-hmm. And then the question of, is this a primarily Jewish uh, type heresy or is this a Gentile type heresy? And I think the probably the answer is some of both. Because right. the best, the best um, evidence we get for what this heresy actually is, is in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And you get some really odd stuff in here. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals and the new moon or a Sabbath. This kind of sounds like Jewish. Jewish people saying, we're uh, Christians, but you still need to do all the Jewish things. Right. Uh, Which is pretty common in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. 
Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, uh, which is nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments from growth that is from God. If Christ died to the elemental spirits of the world, this is a really interesting phrase. And we don't yes, it is. We don't have time to go into all of that, but why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, this sounds very Jewish. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. This kind of sounds Gentile. Right. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, I just read through Greg Beale's commentary on Colossians. It's in the Baker Exegetical series. It came out last year. And he surveys a lot of the different positions on what this heresy actually is. Uh And he has an interesting take on this that basically these people are arguing that in order to fully experience Christ, to, to, to experience God, you must have, you must have one of two things. You must have a set of rules and rituals that you go through, Mm -hmm. or you must have a mystical experience that validates you as a Christian. So Beal, you know, his big book, The Temple and the Mission of God, uh-huh. is all about the biblical theology of temple and the presence of God that runs through Scripture. And so he reads this as part of that theme, that what these people are saying is there's something more than Christ that's necessary to bring you back into the presence of God, whether it's visions of angels, a vision of a heavenly temple, whether it's cleansing yourself through dietary laws or not eating or, mm-hmm. you know, asceticism of some kind. And I think that's probably right because what he what he emphasizes over and over and over again throughout this letter is we're going to see in the theme is if you're in Christ, walk in him. Or since you're in Christ, put on the things of Christ. Right. There is nothing necessary to be brought into the presence of God outside of union with Christ. That's the only thing. Faith in Christ is what it takes. There are no second tier or elite tier Christians Right. Uh, there, there are only those who have put their trust in Christ. And at first I thought this is kind of esoteric. It sounds, you know, culturally uh, conditioned. But actually I think this is still a trend in Christianity today. I mm-hmm. mean, this, this is very much what we'd like to do, which is set little tiers up where if you have certain experiences or if you do certain things, you're a better Christian than other people. Or you've experienced more of God than other people. You right. know, whether that means... Only if you speak in tongues, or only if you have Full a prophetic gospel, gift, charismatic. Or, you know, yeah. only if you have ultra ultra strict rules of personal discipline and discipleship. I mean, all of these things are still prevalent. They may not have the Jewish background, they may not have the Gentile mystery religion background, but we do some of these same things, and that that makes the the remedies that Paul lists here, and right. especially the way that he attacks this heresy in Colossians, pretty relevant for our church today. Mm-hmm. I agree. So before we get too far into this, I want to point out one of my favorite verses in Colossians, which is verse 28. So he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. I think this verse is pretty close, verse 28 especially, is pretty close to Paul's personal mission in planting and nurturing these churches. 
I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, that's a really good to point that out because I think that is Paul's mission statement. I think so too. I think he's makes similar statements in the book of Romans that he wants to bring about the obedience of faith for mm-hmm. all the nations. And I think here what he's saying is he is pouring himself out um, and warning and teaching, exhorting everyone so that he can present everyone mature in Christ. That's, that's what he's doing. You know, it's, he makes the same argument in 2 Corinthians where he says, do we need letters of recommendation from somebody? You right. guys are our recommendation. The fact right. that you weren't Christians and now you are and now you're maturing and you're growing into the likeness of Christ, that is our recommendation, mm-hmm. is that Christ is working in you and we are working to present everyone mature in Christ. And I think most pastors, this should be pretty close to your personal mission statement. I agree. You know, we are not here to build a bunch of Christian stuff. We're here to build a bunch of Christians, right? mature Christians. It's not enough just to win people for Christ. You want them to start looking like Christ. And that's, that's really the, the nitty-gritty of pastoral ministry. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Let me reach back to Ephesians because you see a similar theme. Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless mm-hmm. in his sight. And you could see Paul saying, I didn't save you but I'm here to guide you into sanctification, into that right. becoming holy, into that becoming mature in all... No, I think he uses the words knowledge and wisdom a lot right. in this book. Yeah, and you see that in Colossians And I agree. Well. His mission statement is every pastor, you could argue, every Christian's mission statement. Yeah, yeah I want to reemphasize that in Colossians 1. Again, this is that parallel mm-hmm. uh, structure. He says, this is a great, great set of verses for your sanctification here. He says... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, that is, that's the blueprints right. of the Christian life. That you'd be filled with the knowledge of God so that you might walk in a way that is worthy of him, that pleases him, knowing what his will is and doing it. Right. Exactly. And you're going to see that walking or living in him again over in uh, 2.6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him Mm -hmm. or live your life by following him. You're going to see that over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul says, I rejoice that God has saved you. Now, let me show you where we go from here. Right. You know, that's really the theme. You see it in 2.6, 3.1, 3.12, and everything else, there's some really practical living instructions in this letter, but they all flow out of phrases like, if you've been raised with Christ in 3.1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Or in 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. He goes on. That's one of the best passages as a description of the Christian life. You see this in the household codes that he talks about. So wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Bond servants, obey. Anyway, he goes through and talks about how walking in Christ might manifest mm-hmm. itself in every role that you find yourself in in the ancient world. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly. I mean, he's right. extending this out into real, everyday situations and roles. Uh, just to say a word about the end of the letter in, an, in in our overview, you get some real interesting biographical information yes. about what's going on here. So Tychicus is introduced in 4.7. Uh, he'll tell you about my activities, so we think that's you know him delivering the letter. He's, he's a beloved brother, and he's coming with Epaphras and Onesimus uh, to talk to them about what Paul is saying in this letter. They are his ambassadors, and they carry his authority when they come back and talk about this. 
Uh, Epaphras is, is mentioned in 412. He's one of you, a servant of Christ, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Again, Epaphras has that same pastoral mission, that you might stand mature and fully assured of the will of God. Um, and Paul gives him a little endorsement here. Mm-hmm. You know, I bear witness, he's worked hard for you. And for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. There's a new book by Luke Timothy Johnson, kind of an introduction to Paul and his letters, uh, called Constructing Paul. And it's a pretty good book. Um, but he thinks that these churches were a network. Mm-hmm. That Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis had shared leadership and some shared relationship. Again, we don't know this. He just, right. from certain places in Paul's letters... And uh, certain things in the early church thinks that this might be the case. And you can see why reading this passage that that might be true, that Epaphras is not just ministering to them, but that would have an impact all over this valley um, with these churches. So he greets Nympha, who has a house church in in, uh, one of these cities, um, probably in Laodicea. And uh, we know that Philemon probably has a house church in Colossae. Anyway, we're getting a real glimpse at right. the end of this letter into the inner workings of these early churches. Just a reminder, Onesimus is a runaway slave. Mm-hmm. He ran away from Philemon, who lives in Colossae. That's punishable by death, certainly punishable in a big, big way. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was unlawful throughout the whole Roman Empire because they were so built on the economy of slavery. Right. And so the letter to Philemon is a personal letter from Paul to Philemon about Onesimus. So I'd refer you to our uh, podcast on Philemon to know mm-hmm. more about that. But it's kind of cool to see in these letters the connection of the personal stories. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. And, you know, at the end of Colossians and at the end of um, Philemon, you get to see a little bit of the crowd that Paul's running with at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some real interesting stories. I think we've touched on this because we've done Second Timothy, where Paul's abandoned, and right. especially by Demas. And here in verse 13 or in verse 14, Luke is with him and greets them as does Demas. But we see later Demas, he says, in love with this present world has deserted me. So Demas is not faithful to the end. Yeah, this is, if you assume this is written, say 60, if a Rome, right around there. And then 2 Timothy, Paul clearly is about to die. So think 66 to 68. So the trials and the difficulty of this life of ministry Uh, Demas has turned away. But I would also point out how many other young men, women are Mm -hmm. listed in here who have kept the faith through that time. But I think that's a real authentic insight. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Um, And it just shows the the relational emphasis that Paul has. I mean, he says to Archippus here at the end, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. That's a very personal thing to say. Uh, it makes you think, too, you know, he says, take this letter and have it read in Laodicea and take the letter to them and have it read in your church as well. Paul understands that he's exhibiting um, some authority over these churches, even from a distance. Mm-hmm. It also makes you wonder if there were more people like Epaphras who studied with him in the Hall of Tyrannus when he's in Ephesus, right. uh, who have gone out and are pastoring these other churches, right. not just Timothy and Titus, um, but... Archippus and Epaphras and these other people. Um, He had a network. See, that's a great point because we know some of these uh, people, like obviously Timothy and Titus are famous examples, but Epaphras and Tychicus here. And some of them became evangelists, Mm -hmm. like Paul, traveling, starting churches. But many of these people 
had to have become pastors, uh, people that hosted house churches on a, on a local level. And that still happens today. Mm-hmm. Well, to, as, a, as the next stage of this, I have two passages. I think I have one and you have one that I think mm-hmm. can, can be a trip up. And my, mine is in uh, chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? <laughs> we don't like the sound of that, do we? Yeah, that just doesn't sound right. So what do you think he means here? Well, I'm going to give you an opinion, and I and that it is an opinion. But I, I can't read it as Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient, so Paul has to step in and do something. That's not consistent with right. anything that Paul believes or we believe. But it does mean something. Mm-hmm. And it means Paul's suffering... His trials in, on the behalf of them is somehow him being allowed to suffer like Christ or with Christ. So I yeah. read it simply as saying, if Christ Jesus were here, he would continue to suffer on your behalf like he did ultimately yeah. across. But he has charged me as a minister to the Gentiles that I get to participate in Christ's suffering. Mm-hmm which you see in Philippians, the idea is uh, I've been blessed to be able to, I'm paraphrasing, to suffer with Christ. So I think he sees himself as following Christ in Christ's sufferings. Yes. And Christ promises that his followers are going to suffer. So Mm -hmm. I think Paul, you know, this is not a, a salvific kind of suffering like Christ's was. This is the promised kind of suffering that is necessary for the church. Um, and I think Paul just basically thinks that he's participating in that. You know, Beale makes an interesting point that Paul sees the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. So Isaiah 53, right. there's four of them, um, as a backdrop for what it means to be a faithful Israelite, which is true because right. Christ is the faithful Israel. Right Now, it doesn't mean that Paul is the Redeemer. He's not the Messiah like Jesus was, but he understands that this is what faithful Israelites do. They obey God, they suffer for the sake of his word and his name, and they trust him to the end. And I think Paul is is thinking of that passage as well here, thinking this is what it means to be a faithful believer, is to suffer the required sufferings that are necessary in Christ. You know, I agree. And on a less theological level, I mean, I completely agree with that. I also see this idea in the writings of Mother Teresa, who... Mm -hmm despite our differences on theology, she clearly understood this, and that is, I'm here as a representative of Christ, and if Christ were here, he would be willing to suffer for you. Therefore, that's his charge to me. In other words, we are the ambassadors of Christ, and what do ambassadors of Christ do? Well, they don't sit up and demand that you bow down to them. They go serve you. Right. So when he says what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, I think I read that simply as, he sent me here to do what he would do. Right. And I that's true for you and me and, and everybody else. We're mm-hmm. being sent into this world to do what Christ would do. And that does mean serving and suffering at times. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. The other passage that can be difficult is um, one that you mentioned before we were talking about this in one nineteen and 2, 8 and 9. Mm-hmm. Paul makes sure to mention to them that uh, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. So he says that in verse 19, and then later in suing 2.8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This is everybody's favorite mm-hmm. verse to tell somebody going to get a liberal arts degree. 
at a <laughs> secular university. And for in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all, uh, all rule and authority. What do you think he's getting at there? Actually, that was my question for you. What, here's the interesting thing, and I realize this is hard to be too dogmatic about it, but maybe I should ask, maybe I should put it this way. When you talk about in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. On the one hand, it rebuts the Gnostics who say Christ is sort of a, a vague reflection of God. He said, no, he's all God. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should ask you, what does this passage, what does it not mean? You know, well, I think we can get very theological about this, and mm-hmm. I and that that is out of my depth as a technical scholar by you know leaps and bounds. But I think what we need to say is our doctrine of Christ is that He is fully God and fully man, and that is called the hypostatic union. Uh-huh. How can God? How can Christ be fully man and fully God? You know, how many wills does he have? How many natures does he have? I mean, these are really important questions, even if they're technical. But I think what we need to remember is he has to be fully man and fully God in order for the atonement to work. So he has to be human in the sense that he has to be a representative. He has to be the second Adam. Right. But he has to be God in the sense that there is an infinite punishment that has to be paid for the infinite offense of sinning against the holy God. So his blood has to be able to pay for more than a single man's blood could pay. And so God himself in you know becomes takes on flesh, comes down, dies for his people. Both of those things have to be true. Right. The other thing is we can't say like the Gnostics that he just appeared to be a human being. Right. Uh, he had the all these, you know, he didn't actually suffer, he didn't actually feel anything, he wasn't actually hungry. But at the same time, we can't say with the adoptionists that he became a deity. Right. He started out as a human being, then he became a deity. Paul's saying, no, from beginning to end, he was fully God, he was fully man. I think one of the big points for us to take away from this is God is like Christ, and Christ is like God. The character if that you've seen the father me, you've seen the Father, right? right. Jesus in the Gospels. That's that. exactly right. So if you look at what Jesus is doing, that is consistent with the character of God. And here's the big thing. What you see God doing is consistent with the character of Christ. So one of the things I think this precludes is us saying, well, you know, God the Father is kind of mean and temperamental and all about judgment. But Jesus is actually kind and friendly and all about love. No, they have the same character. They, They do things the same. That means they both are uh, wrathful. They both are just. So that's not a good cop, bad cop thing. The Father and the Son are not playing a good cop, bad cop routine. What you see in Christ is true of God. What you see of God is true of Christ because Christ is fully God and fully man. So now there are things that are different in the sense that, you know, the Son takes on human flesh, whereas the Father does not. Right. Um, so there are those things, but they are ontologically the same is what we would say. In their essence, they are the same. They're both God. And uh, we can't say that, you know, God's words in the Old Testament and Jesus' words in the New Testament should be, you know, one's higher than the other. So this right. is where we can't, we can't get into, well, Jesus never addresses this topic or Jesus never says this or Jesus really takes it easy on these guys. God's word, Jesus' word are the same. Yeah, Jesus is the word of God. Yes. 
You know, one interesting thing, an important thing on this to me is you take that theological idea and you apply it. And here's how I think he applies that idea in this letter. And I think it also in our lives is, as you said earlier, we are all tempted to look for either a set of rules or some kind of unique mystical emotional experience. But what this says to me is the fact that he is the fullness of God is Christ is sufficient Mm. in and of himself. In other words, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. Right. It's not like the Gnostics said, well, you need Jesus, but you need some secret knowledge. Or like the Jews said, well, you need Jesus, but you've got to follow all the rules too. Or like we might say, well, you need Jesus, but you've got to customize him for yourself. Christ is sufficient. He has the full authority of God. He has the full personhood of God. And I think that's... Uh, you say by grace through faith. That's what that's also saying is that Jesus has the authority and the ability to be your saving grace. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.